and welcome to today's episode of Esite's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Matthias Bauer and I will be your host for this episode. And today we are going to talk about competition and competition policy. And we want to discuss what antitrust policy can do to safeguard competition and at the same time promote innovation. And we want to talk about the linkage between competition policy on the one hand and innovation on the other, bearing in mind developments in the economy of the 21st century, recognizing that a lot of innovation these days stems from large digital companies that are by many considered to be dominant and therefore should be broken up. Our guest today is Dr. Aurélien Portuis, an outstanding expert in the field of competition law and enforcement. Aurélien is the director of the Schumpeter Project on Competition Policy at ITIF. And for those who don't know ITIF, it is the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation based in Washington, D.C. Uh, one of the major, if not the leading, economic and technology policy think tank in the United States. Well, and in addition to steering the Schumpeter project at ITIF, Orlean is also teaching competition law, for example, at the Global Antitrust Institute at George Mason University and at the Catholic University of Paris. Needless to say, Orlean has published extensively about antitrust policy, principles of competition in competition law and also on what Orian himself calls antitrust populism. So, I am very happy that we have you on this podcast today. Very warm welcome to you, Orian. Hi, hello. Thank you very much for having me, Matthias. It's a, it's a great pleasure. It is indeed. So, let's dive straight into the topic and let's begin with a rather simple question. Competition policy is by many considered to be an important piece in countries' economic policy toolkit. I think this is true for developed countries, uh, OECD countries, for example, but also developing countries. So since when do policymakers actually care about competition and why do they care? Or to put it a bit differently, where does the idea to have a government-imposed rule system for competition actually come from? Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question to start with. Um, I think it's, it's very important to understand why do we have competition rules or antitrust rules, as we call them. If you look at history, uh, it's not so much the governments that imposed those rules of competition, but at the very beginning was the court. It was very much of a judge-made law. I mean, one of the earliest uh, cases of competition law we can recall from legal history was from the 14th century, like 1414, the case of John Dyer. And it was in medieval England. And very interestingly, it was a case of a non-compete clause, like uh, an employee uh, was a, a Dyer, and he had, as part of his employment contract, a non-compete clause, like the prohibition to compete once he left his job with his former employer. And, and the court struck down uh, this non-compete clause. They found that it was unreasonable. So from the very beginning, when 
what I'm meant to say is that uh, this idea that sometime employers or firms can restrict competition to an excessive amount and excessively, and the court step in in order to say, well, that's disproportionate. I mean, in, in, in Germany, there's this uh, principle of proportionality, and in England, it would be more um, the concept of reasonableness. But both ways, the court will step in and say this is disproportionate or unreasonable because it's not a fair way to compete, and and so very much so the um, the idea of fair way of competing were gradually imposed by court uh, over decades and centuries, and it's only very recently, late nineteenth century, eighteen ninety. Uh, in the U.S. Uh, with the Sherman Act and more uh, at the beginning of the century in, in Europe, that we had statutory provisions, legislation, where the government was mandated to impose some rules of competition. So it's it's quite recent, but the idea of enforcing um, principle of competition was is very old uh, if you look at the uh, jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Very well. That's interesting. Uh, didn't think of uh, going back that long into the uh, 14th, 15th century when you think about competition yeah. uh, law. You mentioned the, the U.S. German Act. You mentioned certain principles in the U.K. and, and also Germany. Mm-hmm. You mentioned fairness being a pri- primary motivation for competition law. Now, fairness, obviously, op- uh, often or, or always, uh, I shall say, lies in the eye of the beholder and now when we actually look at national competition laws and enforcement practices you realize that the rules and enforcement standards they are far from being the same across countries right why why is this the case Uh, so are there for example that's a very interesting question because it's passed down to basically the culture Uh, the culture of the people, the culture of how you look at markets. Because at the end of the day, what is competition law? Competition law is a set of rules that are aimed to address seemingly market failures. So the way a a country look at the market and the, I mean, the the extent to which uh, this market may fail according to its people will tell you how aggressive or lenient this competition law uh, will be. Because at the end of the day, competition law is all about stepping in by the government, the court, the legislature, or the uh, governmental agencies, because markets are supposed to fail. But if you don't consider that market fail, or at least they fail transitorily, and then they will adjust automatically, that there's no need for competition law, or at least there's a need, a much lesser need for competition law. So you can explain the different approaches um, across countries. Um, there's a, a set of uh, competition law principles across countries. But in terms of enforcement, there's a wide variety of enforcement policies, only because countries have a very different way of looking at free market. I mean, if you have competition laws, in China, uh, which is still uh, officially a, a communist country uh, with a very specific view of the market economy, then, of course, it would be very different from, say, Europe or uh, from the U.S. or from other developing countries because you have a different faith or a different uh, in, in free market. So 
yeah, the, the aggressiveness of enforcing competition law also reveal the very limited faith in, um, in having free markets resolving their alleged uh, market failures by themselves. So that's how you can explain this, this difference in, in, in standards or at least in enforcement because across countries the principles are very, very similar, uh, but in enforcement is quite diverging. Okay. Um, yeah, there are a few good points. Um, I certainly share the, um, the view that the kind, that people's belief in uh, the capacity of markets, if you want to put it that way, or companies and, and consumers to solve certain problems um, has an impact on a country's regulatory culture, including competition policy. Curious to... Uh, get your views about um, what we see in the EU these days. Uh, mm -hmm. The EU is a kind of a conglomerate of uh, countries that come from different uh, origins in terms of uh, economic systems. Um, mm -hmm. You have, for example, the big dividing line still between formerly socialist countries, countries mm -hmm. that uh, behind the Iron Current pursued a very different economic model than Western European countries. And still there seems to be a consensus that competition policy should be shaped uh, on the basis of a few principles that are broadly shared, but at the same time are different to what we see, for example, in the US. So fairness, for mm -hmm. example, contestability of markets. I think these are principles that we frequently hear in debates about the state of EU competition law or national competition laws in individual EU countries, but right. less so, I think, in the US. Can you, uh, yeah. can you give us your, your views uh, on this as well? That's, that's a very good point. I think just go back to, um, to, to what I just said in terms of fairness. I mean, if, if, if very, uh, in a very simplistic um, manner, if you want to just perhaps recap the divergence uh, of approach to, um, to competition law, both in the US and EU, I, I would say perhaps that EU is more concerned about fa fair market, fairness in the market, fair competition, whereas the US will be more concerned about free markets and, and, and freedom in in competing and and irrespectively of the size of the company so i think at the end of the day it pairs down to again to how you see market failures is big uh, companies and big corporation a sign of market failure well it may seem that in in, in europe a lot of uh, people may think so may think that imbalance uh, between the size of different companies or at least Concentration, market concentration, is a sign of uh, market failure. Is a sign of market uh, in in very contemporary language. Uh, it's a sign of market tipping, giving rise to a number of gatekeepers and bottleneck monopolies and, and things like that. Or uh, you look at concentrated market as a sign of competition and the way firms compete. They compete by merging and so that they can just exert even more competitive constraints against bigger rivals or they merge because they want to enter new markets. And, and so it, 
bears down to uh, the very, again, to, to the culture and to the faith of the market. So in Europe, I think there is a, there's a, there's an extreme uh, focus on fairness, sometime uh, perhaps at the expense of free markets. Let me explain very, very briefly. Um, mm-hmm. So when you focus too much on fairness, then any inequality of size or capabilities or infrastructure, like uh, companies having accumulated a large amount of data as opposed to its rival having accumulated a small amount of data and, and, and the company uh, in possession with those, all this data, of course, may not want to share those data because it has been the result of a large innovative effort. Then you can see that as unfairness because the two companies uh, compete uh, differently and they're on, on unequal uh, uh, footing. And of course, the larger company, because of network effect, because of a number of market features, they will have, again, better uh, commercial opportunities, which is a self-reinforcing uh, factor. So you can see that as unfair, but you can see also that as very essence of the competitive process so that if you put a lot of effort in terms of competing, in terms of innovating, you need to have those rewards. You need to have this inequality. Otherwise, an egalitarian point of view, an egalitarian objective in competition law will just thwart competition and will deter the entrepreneurial rents, basically the, uh, the, the incentives for entrepreneurs to, yeah, to, to get some profits and to uh, increase the size of the companies and to merge and expand, right? So competition, it's, very, it's a very um, complex area because you also want to ensure that you have the incentives for innovations. And these incentives for innovations, well, cannot be cannot be full and, and whole without the rewards. So you need rewards. And the rewards needs, of course, to be very limited to the company who, who uh, put a lot of effort in innovating. And so there's a lot of inequality in the market because of the capabilities of the firms to innovate and compete and outcompete others and perhaps to kill its rivals, right? Um, you have firms, yeah, what they want is to outcompete rivals. What does it mean, outcompete rivals? Well, it means that kicking out of the market or the companies, is that good or bad? Is that fair or unfair? Well, if it's the result of anti-competitive practice, then you can say it's unfair. But if it's the result of competition, as we say, on the merits, if it's the result of the very essence of the competitive process, well, we want competition to be a race for efficiency, to be a race for consumer benefits. And and it's not completely unfair to have some companies kicked out of the market only because they are sluggish, they don't provide a good uh, product or services to consumers and just consumers vote with their feet and will go for their rivals. And you see this process every day uh, in our lives. And that's a good process. It's a process of disruptions. It's a process where the small can disrupt the incumbents, the big, and, and also where the big can also keep innovating so that they cop up with 
the uh, multitude of competitive constraints that the small startups or the new entrants can exert onto them. So it's very difficult to distinguish what is fair, what is unfair, because you need at some point to have some sort of inequality. In a Galician economy, we know what, what it is. It would be an economy very close to socialist objectives or communist objectives where you have a pure equality between um, between between different companies. So you need different size. You need some rewards. Otherwise, the entrepreneurs are deterred from investing, from innovating. And, and you need also a strong set of principles which rely on property, property right, intellectual property right, where, I mean, the assets of the companies, because they acquired, let's say, data or some intellectual property are the assets of the company. If the company at some point know that all the efforts they're going to have while going to be put into some sort of public utility or some sort of essential facility where the government going to somehow nationalize the, these very strategic assets for the sake of fairness, then on the first place, the companies don't have any incentive to innovate and to put all this investment. You see what I mean? So it's very, it's very important to ensure that although we tackle anti-competitive conduct, such as cartels, collusive practices, which are only aimed at harming consumers and do nothing but stifling the, the, the competitive process, at the same time, we also want to reward pro-competitive pro-innovative and also disruptive practices because at the end of the day, if companies are disruptive and successful, it's also because consumers want perhaps the product of the, of the disruptor and because of consumer benefits. So my point is to say that not everything is unfair. If we consider that everything is unfair, then nothing is fair because distinction across the innovative efforts, the competition efforts, is also a distinction on the merits of the competitions. And it's very important to reward companies according to their merits, not according to their entitlements. No firms have a perpetual entitlement to uh, remain in the market, right? No firms needs to be bailed out by the government or needs to enjoy huge amount of subsidies or or, or even um, protection, you know, uh, to be completely insulated from competition. That is not good for consumers. That's not good for efficiency. It's not good for innovation. We, we don't want to protect the companies uh, with an excessive uh, legal protection. Otherwise, it would be insulating the companies from the competitive process and will just keep those laggard companies being protected by some political will just because the company is close to some political uh, connection, not because it's efficient. And, and so we don't want that. I think if we want a market economy that is dynamic, we want disruption. And as Schumpeter um, famously wrote, uh, we want those 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 gales of creative destructions to fully um, unfold into the market economy so that we ensure that there's no protected market position. There's no such a thing as a monopoly. There's no 
government granted monopolies um, only because uh, we want to protect these these firms and not to protect the competitive process. So we want to make sure that disruption is taking place. And for that, well, sometimes you may see some some outcomes that can be considered as um, as unfair, but they're not always unfair. Okay. So, Aurelien, you talked about, a lot about the meaning of fairness, which obviously lies in the eye of the beholder. It's a very subjective thing. Uh, my impression also is that we can say the same about what constitutes a market failure. When you look into an economic textbook, it tells you that uh, market failures take place when certain criteria apply or when you have a certain situation, this can be the prevalence of an information asymmetry, it can be negative externalities. Mm -hmm. But when you look in a party manifesto, then you get the feeling that uh, pretty much everything can be considered a market failure, including um, mm -hmm. the process of creative destruction that you just mentioned mm -hmm. when you talked about Schumpeter. So this is why I would basically recommend policymakers to focus on the consumer. And I know that there's a a lot of consensus among academics and also uh, competition policy practitioners to focus on the consumer. But my impression also is that this doesn't always materialize in the day-to-day -day, uh, business of competition law enforcement, including mm -hmm. the, the, the law design process, particularly in the EU, where you have harm to consumers uh, mm -hmm. being one criterion, but many others. And in the US, at least this is my impression for the past, um, you have still uh, the consumer being put at the center of the debate when it comes to making a judgment of whether a certain corporate conduct is abusive, mm -hmm. anti-competitive or not. So what is your mm -hmm. opinion? I think it's, um, it's very important to uh, indeed uh, refocus uh, the competition policies and competition debate on the consumers. Because, I mean, many decades ago, the, um, the U.S. antitrust doctrine and debate came up with this this idea of a consumer welfare standard basically saying that well competition enforcement should only be about increasing consumer welfare we just we cannot help competitors uh, it's not about protecting competitors it's about protecting consumers and, and that is exactly at the core of the consumer welfare standards that practices that are uh, that are largely beneficial to consumers can hardly be considered as anti-competitive and reverse-wise, uh, practices that are uh, anti-consumers then may fall within the category of anti-competitiveness. It's not about protecting the competitors, it's about protecting the consumers. Uh, this idea from the US very much um, came in the EU around the 2000s uh, with a so-called more economic approach to uh, a competition uh, law. But nevertheless, if you look at EU competition law, basically EU competition never had one single objective, we mean, which means the consumer uh, welfare standard. Why? Well, perhaps, perhaps the most important objective of EU competition law, very interestingly, but also very peculiarly, is uh, the single market, is market integration. And I think competition law in the EU is weaponized, is used as a way to complete 
the single market. It's not necessarily meant to increase to, to, to protect consumers on the first place. I mean, one key example is the prohibition of price discrimination across countries only because companies uh, will you know charge different price in Europe on, in different countries. That might be pro-consumers because you um, you accommodate the purchasing power of uh, of consumers across countries, right? You can hardly charge consumers in Luxembourg the same way you will charge uh, the consumers in in Romania, let's say, or in Bulgaria, right? Uh, that would make sense because it will it will open up um, a number of opportunities for consumers to access a number of products and services they wouldn't be able to access. Otherwise, this is prohibited in the name of the market integration uh, objective. So this is just an illustration to tell you that the consumer welfare standard is very important in Europe, but is also only one objective amongst uh, many others. And 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 the, the trend over the last few years has been precisely to weaken even further the consumer welfare standard, whereas we need it more. Uh, well, we have it less. Uh, and that is a, a, a kind of a, a, an issue because if you weaken the consumer's welfare standard, what does it mean? Well, it means that you prohibit some practices that are pro-consumers, mainly means that you are ready to harm or to somehow create some consumer harm only for the sake of protecting some other objectives most of the time protecting rivals. And this is very problematic because protecting consumers, I think, is, is, is key. And companies, I mean, the main uh, governors and, and the main shareholders of the companies are the consumers at the end of the day. And the companies cannot survive if they don't have the consumers as their main primary focus. So to disrupt uh, and to the market by some artificial government intervention in order to protect rivals at the expense of consumers, I think is a very misguided approach. And I think, unfortunately, uh, over the last few years, uh, with the very recent uh, regulation introduced by the European Commission, but also in the US, uh, we see great weakening of the consumer welfare standard. Therefore, competition law is increasingly less about protecting consumers and increasingly more about protecting rivals. And therefore, just to come back to the to previous point that I've made, by protecting rivals, you lower down or you you perhaps uh, fraught the process of uh, creative destruction, the process of disruptions, of innovations, of an endless process of recreation of an economy with new new market actors on the basis of uh, their merits, not on the basis of some political interventions. And so I think it's very important to have in mind that competition should be about uh, consumer benefits, but also should be about innovation benefits and all this process of uh, competition in the long term. Yeah. Now I uh, read a lot about the uh, notion uh, that innovation is good for consumers. So mm-hmm. this is this is this is basically part and piece of every uh, EU regulation, at least mm-hmm. the, the preamble of the actual uh, legal proposal that's being made by the European Commission. So there seems to be a consensus that innovation is good for the consumer, 
when it might be good for the European economy at large. And I guess this is also in a way true for the the U.S. and let's say at least our OECD countries. Um, but alluding to the fact that many policymakers and politicians like societal change or at least adjustments to change, can you tell us why people or societies are actually in need of innovation from a bird's eye perspective? Right. So I think competition law needs to be um targeting consumer and ensure that there are consumer benefits, but also more in the long run, we need to ensure that competition is conducive to greater innovation. I mean, most of the time we think that competition leads to innovation, which is totally true. And we have to make sure that a competitive market economy can deliver some innovation benefits. And and it is the case uh, because firms compete through innovation, but also one aspect that I perhaps want to emphasize now is that regulators often overlooked that the causal relationship is both ways so that competition leads to innovation. That's totally right uh, in a sense that without the competitive constraints, firms wouldn't innovate. But also innovation leads to competition. The the causal relationship is, is reversed in a sense that you don't always compete just for the sake of competing, you know, let's, let's say, uh, on price, right? You also compete through innovation. So by having greater innovation capabilities, by having this ability to innovate, it's perhaps, not sure, but it's perhaps one way of out-competing rivals. It's not sure because there's no guarantee at all. Uh, There's a lot of failures and innovation, I think, is more illustrated by failures than by success. Uh, But still, by innovating and by letting firms having this ability to innovate, they may out-compete rivals or they may enter the market. And and I think that is very important to emphasize that, that relationship. Just let me tell you very quickly why? From the textbooks model of regulators, there's this idea of perfect competition. The idea of perfect competition is a very misguided approach and yet too influential in the mind of uh, regulators and enforcers uh, those days. Under a perfect regulation uh, model, which is a completely uh, dystopian uh, model, firms would be under such a competitive pressure that they wouldn't make any profits so that they will charge their consumers at the marginal cost and they, they won't be able to make any profit, right? So the, the competitive constraints are so important that they reduce their price at the minimum so that the consumers benefit from that. But let's assume that uh, firms, that's ever the case, which, I mean, can never be the case, but let's assume for the sake of argument that it could be the case. Let's assume that firms do not make any profit, do not charge above their marginal cost. Then how can they innovate? How can they differentiate their product and services from others? Uh, Well, it's impossible. So you need to have some capital. You need to have this, this ability to garner not only financial capital, but also human capital and to have this ability to just bring together a wide range of capital in order to build the innovation capabilities that will later on enable you to outcompete rivals. So you see this picture of a more long-term view. 
is completely uh, disconnected with perhaps the enforcer's view of a short-term view of competition where under perfect competition, you don't want firms to make any profits because profits would be seen as a market mm-hmm. failure. Well, in under, under a dynamic competition aspect, you see profits as a potential for entrepreneurial rents, meaning for the entrepreneurial drive for innovation to materialize so that at the end of the day, the firm will be able to innovate, will be able to differentiate its products from rivals, and therefore will be able to gain more consumers or to be able to uh, invent new technologies. And uh, so I think that's a complete clash of views between the entrepreneurial view will see innovation in the long term and uh, the enforcer's view will see the competition in the very static, in the very short-term view where any profits or any large uh, or any bigness in companies are seen as evidence of market failure, whereas most of the time, if not always, um, this kind of uh, disability of firms to make profits is a source uh, for its innovation capabilities without which uh, the firms wouldn't be able to compete. So I think it's very important to be very cautious and and even more so in in today's economy. Let me tell you, for example, uh, if you look at platforms, because that's something that uh, everybody talked about. I mean, if if you're an entrepreneur and you're a platform you know that network effect matter a lot, right? Network effects if when you have a, a large user base that precisely mm. creates some value for the platform uh, without which uh, the platform wouldn't have any value, right? If you join Facebook and there's no one on Facebook platforms, uh, Facebook uh, is not worth anything. So it's very important to have this network effect. But how can you build this network effect when you do not mm. make any profits? So you have to have this long-term relationship, this long-term view where you are ready at some point to incur some loss, to incur some massive innovation effort, to spend a large amount of capital in order for this, uh, for these platforms to potentially at some point derive some profits. But in order to recoup the cost that you've made on the first place, you see, the, the, the subsequent profit must be very large in order not only to make the profit on, on, on day one, but also to recoup the previous uh, profit made over the last few years. And, and, and that's how company uh, evolved. I mean, I was looking the other day, uh, for example, Uber started to be profitable almost mm. 10 years after its launch, right? So if these, these disruptors, I mean, really have to take a long-term view of the market if they want to build their innovation capabilities and therefore with this prospect of making a profit which is the very the, the very entrepreneurial incentive to start on the first place so if you under a perfect competition model you look at profit as a source of market failure then you kind of sanction any sort of profit you try to minimize the the extent of profit as much as possible, and altogether you minimize uh, the incentives uh, for innovation and for for disruptions altogether. So I think it's very important for enforcers and regulators to to stay completely away from this 
this theoretical model of perfect competition and looked at the economy as as it is. Um, profits are necessary in order for innovation to take place, and on the first place, but also profits are necessary for an incentive in, in the long run. Yeah. So, Orien, um, you mentioned perfect competition, imperfect competition. I would assume that when you read about these terms in the media, uh, many people would be, say, a bit skeptical with regard to what in the real economy can be considered a market that works well or is close to, let's say, uh, being perfect. Mm-hmm. One argument that you hear very often in the media is that at least in European media, but increasingly uh, I feel uh, in the US as well, is that large technology companies, primarily those that are headquartered in the US, have become too big and too powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but very often people can't tell you why this is the case. Mm-hmm. Now, um, these companies, they include the usual suspects, right? Google, Amazon, right. Apple, and, and so on and so forth. Bearing in mind, however, and I think this meets or this, this basically reflects what you just said, uh, bearing in mind that these companies are extremely active in investing, extremely mm-hmm. successful mm-hmm. when it comes to innovative, at the same time, providing new reliable offerings to the market. What is it actually that competition authorities do complain about? I think uh, it's, the, it's a very good point that you raise. What do they complain about? It's very hard to know because, uh, to be honest, there are many contradictory claims. I mean, just to take an example, a very quick example just for our listeners to, to understand. Uh, for example, let's take the case of Amazon, the, the new chair of the Federal Trade Commission, which is one of the antitrust agencies here in the U.S. She very similarly wrote in a number of articles that basically uh, Amazon is charging too low price so-called predatory pricing. So that would be very strange because why would it charge too low price and to what extent that would be uh, detrimental to consumers? It's, it's, it's very strange. But at the same time, we just saw last year uh, some lawsuits against Amazon for too high price, uh, too high price on their packaging and logistics uh, fees. So it's what I'm saying is that it's very contradictory. So what do they achieve, do they try to achieve? It is unclear. I mean, we can talk about the Digital Market Act. The objectives are very unclear. I think those companies are blamed because what you said, what you just said, because of their bigness. I mean, in in economic history or even legal history, all the time people complain about bigness. I mean, twenty years ago it was Microsoft or it was some big pharma companies or big banks or big big oil or big tobacco. In each generation, people complain about bigness. And each time, if you look at the newspapers uh, many decades ago, each time the, the, the news is about these companies have reached an unprecedented scale. we never seen that in history. And yet again, we see that in history. Can you? I mean, uh, one of the biggest companies uh, in the world now, uh, which is perhaps Tesla, well, I think it's not part of their anti-competitive product uh, or practices, uh, but it's just a new height in the car manufacturing industry, right? It is unprecedented, but does it mean that other car manufacturers wouldn't achieve a similar size? We don't know. So what is bigness? When do we become too big? Uh, 
well, it's it's very hard to to define, and that's why mm-hmm. competition law shouldn't be about size. It should be about anti-competitive conduct, and not about a size threshold. Otherwise, you just break up those companies. And just to put things in terms of the global competition as well, I mean, it's not very hard to look at China. You know, these big firms that we have in the Western world, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, are not that big when they're compared to Chinese competitors. Look at, I mean, Facebook as compared to WeChat or, uh, you know, uh, Apple as compared to Huawei. I mean, so what is big? Well, first, it's hard to look at history because the wealth of the economy has not been uh, has never been as rich as as now. But also, it's very necessary to look at uh, global competitors, mainly also China. So, yeah, it's the bigness is a really flawed uh, criteria to assess uh, anti-competitive conduct. Yeah, I feel the same. And allow me a somewhat heretic side note. Very often, people can't tell you can't tell you why big technology companies are a problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, but at the same time, those who share this opinion, nevertheless, ignore a very important aspect, and this mm-hmm. is that we have uh, real serious problems with what I would call government monopolies. So this mm-hmm. is basically very poor yeah. quality services at very high prices right. to be paid for by taxes. Right. Little or literally, literally, no possibility mm-hmm. to escape consumption that is forced upon on the basis of law. Think of education services, transport mm-hmm. services, office yes. social care services. One of the key takeaways for me is that profits are necessary for innovation to take place and therefore also an important precondition of innovation and structural economic change in the long run. Bearing this in mind, we stop the first part of our conversation here. And in the second part of this episode, we will focus on current affairs, asking Ochelian about his views on competition policy targeted at large online companies and the European Commission's recently proposed Digital Markets Act, which aims to regulate the business of large digital platforms. To our listeners, both parts of this episode will, of course, be available on our podcast channel. 